The episode that you are about to listen to has been pre-recorded like months ago, like half a year or more. But as we have been coming up to releasing it, I I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I I felt like the episode as standalone would not be good because some of the things that I'm trying to work through and think through are things that really need a lot more voices um, in regard to understanding it. So before you go and listen to this episode, I want you to be committed to listening to at least the episode following this because uh, what I do following this episode is I go and I get some people who are in the thick of things Uh, who are able to talk to me about their perspectives and their understanding and kind of how we work through this this difficult issue uh, together as Christians and how we do it lovingly, even lovingly towards our enemies. So please hear me out in this episode and definitely listen to at least the next one or two episodes to kind of get a, a broader picture of this as a discussion. back to the fourth way podcast today we are taking a short but deep excursus from our discussion of nonviolent action i think the timing of this episode is is perfect both because sunday may 2nd is easter and because it just fits with what we where we left off in our last episode on the civil rights uh you might be a little bit surprised to find out that may 2nd is easter but according to the eastern orthodox calendar it is. That's an interesting um, discussion to see how, how they figure out Easter compared to how we did do and uh, if you're Protestant uh, or Catholic. And that's just that's an interesting discussion to, to look back in history and see what changed and why and who's right. But beside it being Easter, like I said, having left off where we did with, the, with our civil rights um, discussion in, in terms of nonviolent action. I think that this is this is an important um, stopping point along the way before we continue, because the the question that so many people in the civil rights movement asked, and the question that so many oppressed ask, who who are told, "Hey, look, we want you to do nonviolence," you know, they they ask, "Why do we have to adhere to this double standard? Why can the oppressors just keep on killing and harming us?" But what you're telling us to do is to lose power, to basically lay down our arms and not retaliate and just take it. So not only is is this whole injustice issue about our having to just bear up and take it in life, but now even in our methodology, you're asking us to submit ourselves to, to being harmed and beaten um, and, and to having violence done about us, uh, to us. That just doesn't seem fair. And in that regard, nonviolence can seem like a tool of the oppressor. Who would ask people to lay down their arms, which is their power, except for the oppressor or somebody connected to the oppressor? The violent and the powerful must love it when the weak and oppressed just take beatings like dogs, and when they themselves, the oppressors, would never stoop to such a level of bearing up under hardship and injustice. 
It's a double standard, and, and how can we expect the oppressed to take it? And that's, that's the issue that I'm going to talk about today. And I, I do want to address that idea, but before I do, I want to be very clear. If you are not a Christian, then this episode isn't for you. You are welcome to listen in, but you'll probably think I'm crazy, maybe even think I'm a bad person. I don't know. In fact, a lot of Christians are probably going to think I'm, I'm a bad person here. Um, but if you are a Christian, I, I would hope that you'd at least hear me out, and that many of you, even though you might not agree with some of the things that I flesh out, um, please take take this episode, whereas some of the other episodes, I may be more of a, quote, expert, like a novice expert. But um, in this one, I'm, I'm kind of thinking out loud. So I'd, I'd be open to, to discussing some of these points. But I, I think the general idea stands um, that I'm going to lay out. So if, you, uh, if you're not in a mood to be patient and thoughtful and gracious and loving, turn this off because this isn't for you. Um, but if, if you're going to be willing to work with me through this and um, understand my heart in all of this and, and be self-reflective, then go ahead and, and keep playing. Let's jump in then. It's easy for each generation to look at social changes and view them as negative changes in morality. You know, whether it's the development of more and more revealing clothing, um, the more open use of certain words that once were considered swearing or cursing or crude words, um, the legalization of, of pot or any other number of changes, it can just seem... To, especially to an older generation, that the sky is falling morally. But at the same time, there are changes which happen socially which clearly fall within the moral realm, very clearly, at, at least from a Christian perspective. You know, loosened sexual ethics, that's a clear moral issue. Uh, sentimental spirituality, refusing to plug into a church body, being consumers of churches, that's a problem. Or the increasing acceptance of certain birth control methods, like the day-after pill. These are all examples of social changes which, from a historical Christian standpoint, clearly cross the threshold of immorality. And while I could harp on any one of these issues and bemoan the degradation of modern liberal Christianity, I instead want to point fingers at myself and my own group and ask for our personal reflection as I highlight what I think is a troubling trend which undermines our ability to critique modern culture. So this is for you, conservative Christians, as I talk to myself. I'll let you let you in on my personal conversation, my monologue. So modern conservative Christianity, at least in the States, is quite often a religion of convenience. Many of us who are, are in the fold were born into the fold, and our family and surrounding culture make it easy for us to remain as we are, apparent Christians. Though some things are changing, our society also has laws and expectations which often overlap with aspects of our Christian morality with the way that we grew up. For instance, having a child out of wedlock is far more acceptable than it was 50 years ago, but there's still a, a pretty big stigma that comes along with w unintended pregnancies, especially if you're in certain parts of the country. Conservative Christianity also sees itself as extremely patriotic, so it often embeds one deeper into the culture by underwriting the nation, its actions in the world, and its processes. So at least in the United States, to walk among Christians, to be called a Christian, to identify as a Christian, has without a doubt been historically convenient and easy. But when religion becomes cultural, 
when it becomes convenient, then impediments to convenience are often discarded and excused away. The the limiting factors and the inhibitors have to be tossed to the side in order to keep the swell of converts and power. And this isn't just a a religious thing. Um, We see it in in something as simple as the video game world as well. So if you're an extremely dedicated or long-time player to a particular game, and you've received certain advantages due to the time that you've invested or the, the skill that you've had in the game, that makes it really prohibitive for other people to buy the game and then enter it. Right? If I've been playing for three years and now uh, I have like all these perks and abilities and things and you are thinking about getting that game but you know that you're going to be up against all these people who've been playing for three years and are amazing and have way better gear than you do, you're not going to want to enter that game because you're just going to get beat down. Uh, it's not going to be any fun. So the newcomer would have to go through a steep learning curve They'd have to invest a lot of time into the new game, and they'd have to go through many games of disappointment before being rewarded by being able to compete with those who, who came ahead of them. So the video game industry, what they do is they tear down impediments to this convenience, to this pleasure. They offer oftentimes like pay-to-win packages, which allow newcomers to buy experience or weapons or gear to help their character, which would have otherwise taken time and skill to acquire. They offer double experience sessions every now and then, or after some time they sell their game with an automatic level up to, you know, if the, the highest level was 50 and they, they just open a new expansion, they'll be like, hey, if you buy the game now, you automatically get to 50, and now everybody's trying to get to 70, but you'll be caught up with, with everybody who's played for years. So whereas such a strategy might be reasonable at times when discussing a video game whose purpose is entertainment and it's for consumers... The impact of doing this in the Christian realm is, is very different. In this episode, I want to look at five ways the modern church has dumbed down entry to being a disciple of Christ and explore the impact that this has on our witness to the world. Now I'm going to look at five seemingly clear teachings from the New Testament, which, which we tend to discard today. Now some of these teachings are more matter of, matters of convenience, maybe, whereas others are significant matters of life and death for people. Uh, so in some of these instances, you might say it doesn't have that huge of an impact, and in other, other cases, you'll be like, oh, that's, that's serious. How can, how can we talk about this? But all of these are ways in which the Bible seems to indicate that we ought to be willing to suffer. Now, as we look at the five ways that we tend to inhibit suffering and, and throw it off and excuse it away— I do want you to understand that you don't have to agree with my assessment on all five of these points for me for my point to stand. Even if you agree on like two or three of them, um, then then my point still stands. And that main point is simply that we forego suffering, we insulate ourselves from suffering, we dumb down Christianity in some very significant ways, ways which impacts our ability to speak truth to others. So. What are those five ways that I've identified? And I'm sure there are more, but first of all, divorce. The Bible is really clear. The New Testament is very clear on divorce. Jesus says that divorce was allowed in the Old Testament because of the hardness of Israel's heart, but that the only reason it should occur in the New Testament is for adultery. And even that last bit should be held tenuously as 
There are good arguments as to why divorce shouldn't be read as something a Christian ever considers for any reason. There's a, a very good link in the show notes which provides you with um, you know, uh, scriptural references and, and, and stuff that you can look at that argument as to why Jesus isn't saying that it's okay uh, under adultery. And it, Some of it's based on the Greek words, some of it's based on um, parallel passages, but it's interesting. But regardless, let's just let's take the the softer version. The Bible talks about divorce for adultery. Even if that's a sufficient reason for divorce, it wasn't a requirement to divorce. A number of anti-Nicene fathers indicate that if repentance was sought by the spouse, that the marriage should be maintained. And as we'll repeat in the remarriage section, this is part of the reason that they saw the biblical command not to remarry as important. If I divorce my wife for adultery and don't remarry, then if she should turn and repent, I'm able to right the wrong and to take her back because of because what God has put together should not be torn asunder, even if he allows for it. Right? What is, what is ultimately the best thing to do? Repentance and forgiveness. But then we get into modern questions. Well, what about cases of abuse? And this isn't a question to be taken lightly, not only due to the gravity of the circumstance, but because it tends to disproportionately affect a, uh, an oppressed class, women, who, who tend to be uh, downtrodden far more, even if that's getting better in the United States, still domestic violence and such is, is disproportionately against them, but certainly across the world. Now, this, is, this is a serious question. Nevertheless, I think First Peter 3 is insightful here. Peter just finished telling slaves to bear up under their masters, even if those masters are harsh. Now, knowing what we know about Roman society, that could be pretty bad, including not only physical beatings, but sexual assaults as well. So when we get to 1 Peter 3, immediately following the slave section, Peter tells wives to submit to their husbands in the same way. In the same way as what? Presumably in the same way uh, as Peter references Christ and then subsequently slaves, um, presumably in the way that he's, ways that he just got finished talking about. Now, that's, that's a hard pill to swallow, and some of you might want to throw your, your devices down right now. Um, and I'm, I'm just kind of expounding from, from uh, the Bible here. But you can also look at the anti-Nicene fathers who were, were saying the same thing about this. And many of them acknowledge that the only legitimate reason for divorce, if any, was infidelity. And there's one quote from Origen that I like a lot because... Again, this is disproportionate against women, but I like how Origen brings men into this, where where he's saying, "Look, you can't just you can't just use this as an excuse to keep women attached to their husbands." He's saying, "Husbands, if you're mistreated, you better do the right thing too." And he listen to what Origen uh, says. Well, I'm not going to quote him, but but I'll I'll summarize it for you. You know, he asks whether or not a man should divorce his wife if he finds out that she's been trying to poison him, to kill him. Or if he comes home and he discovers that she has killed their newborn, should a husband stay, stay um, with his wife? And Origen declares that these things seem far worse than infidelity, right? attempted murder and actual murder of somebody else, but that the command of Christ is clear on divorce. We are to bear up under hardship, not because we are masochists, but because, as the end of 1 Peter 2 shows us, this is what Christ is like who bore up under sufferings in pursuit of us. 
Now, some like to point to 1 Corinthians 7 as Paul is basically saying that divorce is okay in situations of abandonment. And Paul may be saying that, though he never uses the word divorce. He says that a woman is not bound if her husband leaves her. But very quickly afterwards, he says that one should remain in their state and not pursue change, implying that a woman who is abandoned may essentially be divorced by her husband, but that then is her state, and she should remain in it. Now, I recognize that all of this sounds horrendous to your ears, and it sounds horrendous to my ears. It's, it's very abrasive. In today's legal world, um, women have more rights than they used to, and it seems like they should be able to divorce their deadbeat or violent husbands. And when we bring concepts like child custody law into account, it is absolutely impossible for me to imagine how this would play out. While a woman fleeing the violence of her husband may be possible, if one wouldn't, uh, without a divorce, and um, without going through the courts, if she has a kid, she might be forced to leave her kid or else that's considered kidnapping, right? So I, I recognize that this is, this is something that the church would really have to discuss here and figure out what do we do in these situations so that we can remain faithful to what the Bible teaches, but at the same time um, protect our congregants. Maybe it would look like having sanctuary churches like they do for immigrants and doing that for women and having women's shelters. I don't know. What liberals try to do with with this passage is they try to say that, well, the Bible can morph through time. So, you know, this was them trying to apply apply Christology back in the day. But now that we've advanced, you know, we, we apply things differently and we have different laws. So it doesn't mean what it it doesn't mean what it says because that was particular to circumstances. And conservatives they try to jump through all sorts of hoops because they believe that what the Bible says, it says, and you're, you're supposed to stick to, especially in terms of morality. Um, so what they try to do is they try to explain away the Bible's clear teaching on divorce and say that it doesn't mean what it actually says because if it meant that, then we'd have to actually follow it. And so we, we jump through all sorts of hoops to make it mean something different. And it's always just so amazing to me how conservatives can be so clear on homosexuality which, which isn't ever named um, in the way that, that would be so clear to us, but we kind of infer it through different, different things. And yet, when the teaching on divorce is, is pretty clear, it's like, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that. It's just amazing how we, how we jump through hoops. So no matter how you look at it, Jesus and the apostles in the early church were asking couples, and especially disadvantaged women, to do some serious bearing up under some horrendous hardship. Origen took it as far as, Husbands, if your wife's trying to kill you, or if your wife kills your baby, stick with her. That's tough stuff. What's another way, second way, that the church, um, the church kind of dismisses suffering? And that's remarriage. Going along with divorce is, is this issue of remarriage. The Bible and the early church fathers are extremely clear on the issue of remarriage. It's not to be done. We could discuss whether there was an allowance for remarriage if one was the victim of a spouse's infidelity, but other than that more gray area, the Bible's pretty clear. Most, if not all of the early church fathers, thought that remarriage was inappropriate, uh, along with the Bible, and many claimed that it was even inappropriate for those who were victims of infidelity. Part of this is not only because they were made one flesh and should seek no other apart from death, but that the other reason was because it allowed room for potential reconciliation in the future. 
No matter how you look at it, remarriage was nowhere close to being accepted in the way that it is today. It's awfully inconvenient in our society to refuse remarriage if one is divorced, but the biblical teaching prohibits it for most, if not all, reasons. And there's the third way that we inhibit suffering, and that's slavery. We don't really have legal slavery today, so this one's kind of difficult to parse out. And maybe instead of thinking of slaves, we should think of prisoners, especially prisoners who are, are there illegitimately, you know, um, wrongfully convicted, who in the United States, they're legal slaves under the 13th Amendment. However you imagine this playing out today, the Bible and the early church tell slaves over and over again to submit to masters, legal slaves anyway, uh, even to masters who are harsh, going back to, to 1 Peter 2 there. It's true that the Bible also tells masters to treat slaves as brothers and sons, but we're focused on the oppressed groups in this, uh, in this particular episode. Slaves were to bear up and serve well, even under severe treatment. Rome may not have had the exact same type of shadow slavery that we did here in the States, but to act like slavery wasn't horrendous is just ignorant. Many slaves could be used, raped, and sold at will, however, they, however the masters wanted to do that. Slaves are told to be free if they can be in the Bible, but that their position as a slave is, is really irrelevant to their status. They shouldn't just pine after it. They don't need freedom to live in Christ. They can serve joyfully and be content in their situation, and they aren't to pursue freedom in an inordinate manner. Freedom was a good, but it wasn't a good worth undermining the testimony of their lives for. If one were legally enslaved in a country today, or if one is a prisoner, unjustly especially, it seems like the biblical and early church consensus would be to live to the best of your ability in your situation and to love submissively. I don't know any modern Christian who would counsel a legal slave in the same manner as the authors of the Bible. Number four, submission to government. This is an issue which seems uh, apparently clear from Romans 13, thought to be written under the rule of Nero the persecutor, along with 1 Peter 2. And um, yeah, the, the early church, it was an issue in the early church. It, it doesn't matter who's in charge, God is sovereign. And in light of God's power and control, we bear up under hardship and persecution and we submit to governmental authorities. If the early church was univocal on this under rulers such as the nefarious Nero and Diocletian, surely American colonials should have been submissive to the British government. Violent revolutions and seeking to overthrow government is not biblical or in accord with early church teachings and practice. We are to bear up under suffering and to remain faithful to Christ in the testimony of both our lives and our lips. And that brings us to the fifth point, loving our enemies. Jesus clearly taught us to love our enemies. He wasn't telling us simply to love our obnoxious neighbors, but he had in view the worst of the worst in his day, the Romans and the Samaritans. These were people so theologically and morally corrupted in the eyes of Jews that they couldn't even imagine such things. The anti-Nicene fathers are univocal on the issue. Image bearers of God are not to be killed in self-defense, in capital punishment, in war, or as disposable fetuses, uh, as disposing of newborns in abortion or infanticide. Life and vengeance are not ours to take. 
Jesus demonstrated this the best when he submitted to unjust Jewish and Roman authorities, he was tortured, and he died while loving and forgiving those who killed him. So those are some some tough things to take there, especially for me, the difficult ones would be uh, the divorce, particularly for um, for spouses with, with horrible, uh, for somebody with a horrible spouse, and slavery. I mean, I just, I, I don't know how you how you deal with that. But at the same time, uh, if you take a conservative approach, the Bible's pretty clear, very clear. And the early church fathers, um, they solidify that. So you'll notice that none of the five issues sound very good to us, especially to us as American Christians. Some of them, like I said, might only be an inconvenience, like not being able to remarry. That would be a difficult inconvenience. But others sound like they're actually morally reprehensible. Would we really ask an abused spouse not to divorce? Would we really tell a North Korean to submit to their government? Now, I understand those struggles, and and we could discuss that in much more depth. And and maybe you could excuse away one or two of those categories, maybe. Uh, I think that that's difficult, but maybe. And it's difficult for us to understand, in part, because we are in a rights culture. And that's a, a relatively unique thing in history. It gives us a, uh, a different perspective on things, which makes previous writings very difficult to understand for women in Rome who weren't in a rights culture, or at least not to the same extent that, that we have rights. But what we need to understand is that Jesus did not come to prop up our rights. He came to lay down rights and to call us to lay down our rights as well. Philippians 2 gives us a beautiful picture of what a Christian ought to be. The vast majority of what it calls us to do is relational. They're things which look out from ourselves and towards another. Verses 1-4 through say the following, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Importantly, the grounding of our focus on other and looking away from ourselves is Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 and 1 Peter 2 are some of the clearest passages which ground how we are to live. Because Jesus humbled himself and emptied himself, because he submitted to unjust authorities, and because he was willing to be tortured and killed and suffer, so it should be with us. When we as the modern church basically throw off all the ways that we we have to show suffering to a world, legitimate ways of showing suffering, that becomes a problem. And I've talked about this before, uh, I forget which episode, but you know, uh, Yoder talks about how a lot, everybody says that they're bearing the cross. Oh, I have a cold. I'm bearing my cross. I got laid off from work. I'm bearing my cross. And bearing our cross just means life kind of stinks right now. Um, but then, I mean, I guess most non-Christian, all non-Christians are bearing their crosses too, right? And Yoder's like, no, that's not bearing your cross. Bearing your cross is when because of what you believe and because of you being a disciple of Christ— you face choices which require you to enter suffering and allow suffering because of your beliefs and because of your discipleship. 
That's what cross is. Cross is inevitable from from your choices, um, but if it doesn't flow out from from your choice to follow Christ, that's not really cross. That's just natural evil or suffering. And so we Christians know that we're supposed to bear crosses, so we look for pain in our lives and suffering, and we call that cross, when in reality, very few of us are actually bearing any cross whatsoever because our decisions don't have real-world ramifications. They don't require any mortification of our flesh. They don't require us to, to have any moral integrity. We're never asked to do the hard things because we make hard things into metaphor, and we dismiss them, and we excuse them. And there, there's a significant consequence to our refusal to suffer, I think. You know, I've, I've pointed out five ways in which Jesus and, and the anti-Nicene church taught us to accept suffering, which, which we've largely thrown off today. And I could discuss the implications that that has on the quality of the visible church, the implications it has for our walk with Christ. All of those things are important, but I want to instead focus on an implication which I think will hit closer to home, particularly for conservative Christians, not so much for liberal Christians. I want to show how conservative Christian hypocrisy, again, my group, I I pick on my group, I pick on the people that I run with, I want to show how our hypocrisy of an unwillingness to suffer undermines our ability to prevent what many conservative Christians view as extreme social degradation, moral degradation, in the case of sexual and gender ethics. Conservative Christians declare that the Bible teaches there's a distinction of the sexes, male and female. Conservative Christians also teach that the Bible is very clear on the immorality of homosexuality. Because of the clarity of Scripture, conservative Christians are vehemently opposed to transgender lifestyles, homosexuality, sex changes, etc. And what do conservative Christians tell those who feel a strong natural attraction to the same sex, or who feel like they're a woman trapped in a man's body? Usually, they tell them that such is their station in life. It may be a hard life, and we can feel the utmost compassion for these people, but um, you know, it, it's a tragedy that a same-sex attracted person will not be able to fulfill the desires of their heart to start a family and to find togetherness with someone else. Uh, so sad, too bad, right? We, we feel for you, but man up, woman up, whatever. It, is, it, it might be heartbreaking to us even. Maybe we do have some sympathy. It's heartbreaking that a woman who feels like a man has to live every waking hour of her life in disorientation, but such is her station in life, right? Because that's what the moral thing to do is, to bear up under that suffering, um, that, that disorientation or that, that lust, that, uh, that desire that is um, not in line with, with God's will, God's moral will. And we tell these people that doing the right thing isn't always easy and it doesn't always make sense. But such is the Christian life the mortification of the flesh and the pursuit of Christ-likeness as we do what he calls us to do, even though uh, it's difficult and even through the midst of suffering. Now, if after all of our discussion on modern Christian compromises, the five things that I've identified, if after all that, you are able to listen to that, that last little bit without just immediately sensing the dissonance there and the hypocrisy, then that underscores the significant problem here. We've accepted what I, what I identified as five compromises, maybe you only see three, may, give me three, whatever. Um, but I've identified five things that I see as moral compromises. 
uh, with, with what Jesus asks us to do in order to be like him, in order to, to obey God. Five areas where Jesus asks us to bear up under injustice, under unjust suffering, in order to show the world that we are like him and that our station in life, we can remain in it because um, our identity is in Christ and we can, we can be faithful even though the whole world is against us and our lives are falling apart. And while we compromise in those five areas and, and say those are excusable, then all of a sudden, when it comes to the LGBTQ community, we demonize the Christian who is LGBTQ for their excusing away of, of that lifestyle and a refusal to bear up under the suffering of what it would mean to live morally with their desires and with their disorientation. They're morally compromised for excusing away the suffering that's due them, but we, we've excused away our cross for our whole lives. That seems like utter hypocrisy to me. And that, that not only has an implication for our lives, but that has an implication for how in the world are we supposed to speak into their lives. Modern Christianity, through our compromised teaching and lifestyle, has in part created the situation that we're in. We've taught the world that Jesus is about our rights, our right to divorce, our right to overthrow tyrants, our right to kill enemies who seek our harm. We haven't adequately taught or shown how the Bible is a call to elevate our relationship with Christ above all else and humbly submit, even in the most difficult of suffering. Gay Christians don't want to suffer, at least in part, because we've taught them that suffering and cross are to be avoided at all costs. We've shown them that is to be avoided at all costs, even at the cost of moral compromise in the light of clear scriptural teaching. For our comfort, convenience, safety. For our life, to preserve our life. We call gay Christians to sacrifice while we jettison our own call to sacrifice. And a lot of times I wonder, would it be easier to speak into the LGBTQ community from a conservative Christian perspective if rather than speak into it judgmentally and ask them to sacrifice, we showed them a life of sacrifice and asked them to join us. That seems like two very, very different things. While the modern problem highlighted here is between the conservative Christian church and the gay community as I, I've expressed it, uh, I want to now tie it to, to our last episode and to this nonviolent action stuff. So we saw in the last episode that a, a similar problem existed here in the black community during the civil rights era. And it's a problem that can often arise in oppressed groups. They ask, why should we bear up under hardship when our oppressors are all too happy for us to do such a thing? And I can't answer that for non-Christians. But the answer for Christians should be pretty clear. We can bear up under oppression with integrity because that's what our Savior did. And not only did he do that for us, but he showed us that this is the power of God to transform. Our refusal to adjoin ourselves to him in the same fashion, is evidence of our unbelief. Of course, such unbelief is inevitable in a society so hell-bent on comfort and convenience. Like Ezekiel's picture of Sodom, we are overfed and unconcerned just like them, and we deserve judgment for that. Spouses can't make the difficult decision to stay with their partner because they don't have churches who will shelter and protect them because we don't value that kind of thing. We don't value that integrity. We can't love our enemy because it's never been modeled to us, as our churches split whenever there's disagreement over even the smallest of issues. And our very founders, who we claim are Christians, uh, rebelled against government. 
That's our example. That's our, our, our example is national. Until the church can model self-sacrifice, how could we ask anyone else to mortify the flesh and sacrifice themselves? The sad thing is that in the last episode we saw from Young, Andrew Young, and others in the civil rights movement, they discovered that the biblical teaching of nonviolence was power, but they sadly discovered that apart from the broader church declaring that within their lives. In this way, as Cohn says in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, the black church in the United States has been the true and faithful picture of Christ to the United States. And that's something that most of my white brothers and sisters don't want to hear. The black church has not only demonstrated love and forgiveness, seen as recently as the Charleston massacre where black families immediately forgave their assailant, but the black church has also modeled for us nonviolent enemy love. And they've done so even in the midst of their persecution. It's blacks who have historically been unable to attend church when they were under slavery. It's blacks who were kept from churches, from white churches post-slavery. It's blacks who were bombed and shot by whites as they went to church. It's the black church who have loved enemies even under suffering and death. White Christians in the United States have a persecution complex. And in our arrogance, we pass over not only the true persecuted church here in the United States, but the true example of Christ in action, the black church. They've been the faithful church in most ways, not us. Yet, that's not the picture that we get of Christ when we think of Christ. We think about preserving our church, our comfort, our power. I thank God for the witness of the black church because as I've read more and more from them and seen their witness, they have helped me to begin to transform. And I'm thankful for them. Now, my point in all this is not to talk about how bad Christians are or how acceptable alternative lifestyles are. To err is human, and every culture and every generation fashions religion in its own image to some extent. We're all guilty of great sins and small sins, and um, we all need Jesus as Savior. And this isn't an episode about judging people and um, and condemnation. This is a, a this is an episode about figuring out how do we become more like Christ and how do we support each other in that and how do we bear up under suffering and accept suffering as, as a, how do we accept cross as a part of our Christian lives? My question isn't how far we've erred, but rather where do we go from here? And for the Christian, there's only one possible answer. We go to Christ. As we turn to him and run to him, we find that he's calling us to live lives parallel to his. We live with our thoughts continually about other even and especially when loving the other involves our suffering. Suffering perfects us not because each bruise and beating creates calluses on our bodies and souls, but because each stripe we receive is a reflection of our master and an indication of our humility. How much suffering should we be willing to take before we become like Christ? I would imagine that he set the bar for that. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as we submit more and more to the cross, we are to bear, and as we become more conformed to the image of Christ, it should become truer each day that his stripes are becoming our stripes. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it.